to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Chief Resident in Cardiothoracic Surgery at the Cleveland Clinic, and today I will be interviewing Dr. Spenson on the topic of aortic root aneurysms. Dr. Spenson, let's start off by discussing a typical referral you may see from a cardiologist in which a 58-year-old male presents to your clinic with an incidental finding of an aortic root aneurysm. What pertinent history and physical findings do you look for when working up these patients? And what imaging studies do you recommend in order to make a decision about operative intervention? So that's a broad category. What typically happens is my nurse uh, comes to me and somebody has referred a patient in that kind of scenario. And so what I ask for in all these patients is obviously an echo. Um, a CAT scan. I, I really don't rely that much on MRIs because I find the CAT scans are more accurate and I can manipulate the images myself much more, look at the different angles, for example, the arch and the root. And then I get pulmonary function tests on everybody. There are a couple of reasons for that. If there's valve pathology, I'd like to know how bad the valve-related shortness of breath is versus the pulmonary function and COPD and then in patients with, for example, Marfan's, you often find pretty severe restrictive uh, restrictions in pulmonary functions, particularly FEV1 or FEC, and so I'd like to have that. And then if we've already got enough information to decide that the patient is going to go ahead with surgery, then we'll order cardiac catheterization before the patient sees me too. So um, based on those studies, the things I'm looking at are what's the size of the aorta, what's the growth rate, is the root involved, is the arch involved, is the thoracoabdominal aorta involved, and uh, is there a family history, is there bicuspid valves. Those are sort of the broad categories that help me then begin to think about what are we going to do for the patient. There's a lot of debate currently about what size criteria are used in order to do a root replacement. What size and growth criteria do you use in your own practice? So let's divide that into uh, the elderly connective tissue disease patients and the bicuspid valves. So in the elderly patients, I will typically not operate on them unless the aorta is 5.3, 5.5 centimeters. A lot of those patients have giant cell arteritis, and uh, so that factors into it. Uh, less so COPD-related kind of disease nowadays, and we talk particularly the ascending aorta. And obviously, the degree of valve pathology or coronary disease plays into that decision-making. When you look at the connective tissue disorder patients, we look at the absolute size, and then so five centimeters is what I use as my general cutoff for connective tissue disorder patients. Uh, with the exception in the patients with lowest deeds, then I will consider it about 4.5. Now in the guidelines we said 4.2 centimeters and that's influenced by the recommendations out of Johns Hopkins, 
but that population is a lowest deeds patients were younger patients with uh, worse I think uh, lowest deeds than we sometimes see I mean we've seen patients in their 60s with lowest deeds and they've just done fine um, as far as uh, the other part of the connective tissue disorder patients, we look at their cross-section area divided by the patient's height. If that is more than 10, that ratio, then we recommend surgery because you can have a short patient with Marfan's or uh, Turner syndrome, who may be, particularly Turner syndrome, maybe 4 foot 10, and a large aorta in that patient is very different to a tall male who's 6 foot 4 and is 5. So we take that into account. We have um, looked at that and in the Marfan population uh, that we've found is a reasonable way to pick up the patients who dissect at less than five centimeters. In fact, about 15% of patients with Marfans will dissect at less than five centimeters. The third group is the bicuspid valve patients. Um, as you know, uh, there was a period when we said 5.5 centimeters, we went down to 5 centimeters, and then there was the recent uh, publication valve guidelines which suddenly threw out, oh, uh, by the way, you shouldn't operate until 5.5, and that caused quite a lot of consternation. Uh, for those who follow the literature, we published a paper, Charles Wojnarski, one of our residents, did a study looking at this over a thousand patients. And basically because of that paper, we found two important things. First of all, the rate of aortic dissection in patients with bicuspid valves is higher if the root is five centimeters. and uh, secondly, that the cutoff for dissection varies between roots and ascending aorta. Now, the inflection points for developing dissection in the aortic root uh, was uh, a bit lower, so at about five centimeters, and in the ascending aorta, it was about 5.2, 5.3 centimeters. Having said that, we found that the best predictor of an event was actually the, the patient's ratio, so cross-section area divided by height. And so that's why the recommendations were changed so that it went back to five, and on top of that it was added that uh, you can do the, the ratio and use that also as indication for surgery. So that's broadly uh, the situation. I'll add one more thing, that if you are operating on a patient for bicuspid valve disease, in other words, say AI or aortic valve stenosis, and the aorta is enlarged, our data shows that if the aorta is less than 4.5 centimeters, you can safely leave that alone. If it's more than 4.5 centimeters, you need to address that at the time of the aortic valve surgery. Great. Let's take a scenario in which the same 58-year-old male is referred to you and found to have a calcified bicuspid aortic valve, a 5.2 centimeter root aneurysm, and a five centimeter mid-ascending aortic aneurysm. Please describe your operative strategy. So having gone through the testing as we discussed, in that patient, obviously with aortic valve stenosis, that's not a valve we can uh, keep. When I was a trainee with Dr. Cosgrove, we actually did do a lot of patients with bicuspid valves and we then cleared off the calcium with the idea 
to keeping the valve, but those were back within a few months to a year, and so that did not work out. We used a CUSA ultrasound to do that, and having burnt my finger with CUSA, uh, I know it's very painful and I'm sure it hurt the valves too, and that's why they scarred up. So in the scenario that you present with a 58-year-old, um, there are two issues here. First of all, um, composite valve replacement, and then secondly, what valve type. My general feeling based on the paper we published um, in about six months ago is that we uh, have very good results with mechanical valve, composite valve graphs very low stroke rate and part of the reason for that is when you do a composite valve graph with a mechanical valve you tie the suture on the outside of the valve outside the graph so there's less likelihood of platelet formation clot formation on those sutures and so the long-term results both from the point of view of stroke survival reoperation are actually very good in the mechanical valves but having said that, also young patients now and the 58-year-old typically will ask for biological valve. And so in that scenario, um, I leave it much to their decision-making, but explaining they'll need another procedure. And so because of that, uh, we do a lot of biological composite valve graphs. Uh, that's a very quick uh, weight uh, operation and it's very easy just with a couple of whip sutures to attach a biological valve to a tube graft and make your own composite valve graft. So that works very well. The, the hope in these patients is that they, down the road, can have a valve and valve uh, procedure. And um, out of interest, we have uh, an abstract now on some 47,000 patients with percutaneous aortic valves, TAVARs. And in the patients who had valve and valve, the results are actually very good. They're better than the general population that has a primary TAVAR. So I think that bolsters the argument for the thinking that when my valve fails, I'd like to have a valve and valve down the road. Let's change the scenario. What would be your operative strategy in a 62-year-old male with a family history of dissection, possible undiagnosed connective tissue disorder, and a 5.2-centimeter root aneurysm with a competent aortic valve? So those are, are very nice cases to do. And in that scenario, uh, we re-implant the aortic valve. So we've modified the reimplantation uh, operation and we've been criticized for using pledges but we've also done studies on our patients looking at gradients and found that gradients are not an issue. And then on top of that we tie the sutures down around a Hagos. And the reason why we do that is firstly so that you don't narrow down the left ventricular outflow tract too much and create a gradient and also it makes for quicker and more efficient operations. So the reimplantation operation, reimplanting the valve in a tube graft um, can be done in 15 minutes to an hour and 10 minutes if you have to do some leaflet repairs and put in some figure of eight sutures to suspend the, the uh, leaflets. And as a general rule, most patients, I'll use a size 30 hemoshield graft and um, 
the sizing of the Hagar is based on the patient's body surface area and that's based on um, the size of homographs on patients and that has, as I said, held up very well and when we've looked at gradients that works very well. So for those who want to look that up, uh, many years ago I wrote a paper on how to do that a modified reimplantation operation and the details about sizing are there. If the valve in this patient was a bicuspid valve but confident, would it change your operation at all? So now we're getting to a more complicated scenario. In the patient with a functioning tricuspid valve that is uh, competent, I tell patients 95% of the time we can reimplant your valve and keep it for you. The long-term durability in our hands is now 95, 97% are still working 10 years after surgery. We've done over 600 reimplantations now. In the bicuspid valves, in the older patient, I've been backing off doing remodeling operations or for that matter, reimplantations. And the reason is that in the, the recent study that I was referring to with some 960 odd patients where we did root operations, we found that there was a high failure rate in the remodeling operations, which is my preferred operation in bicuspid valves. And so in an older patient, I began to try and encourage them more to have either mechanical composite valve graft or a biological composite valve graft. If it's a very straightforward repair with a bicuspid valve, then I'm fine doing a remodeling operation, but I'm not doing it as much as, as I used to. And even though we have been, uh, and I make sure that the annulus doesn't spread over time, and uh, I used to use a subannular suture to anchor that annulus. We had a fairly high incidence of pacemakers with that, so I backed off on that. But even so, over time, I find the leaflets tend to stretch and prolapse again, and the patients, if they have got aortic valve regurgitation before surgery, tends to recur. Let's take one more scenario. Uh, this patient is a 19-year-old female with a bicuspid aortic valve and moderate insufficiency. Uh, she also has an enlarged root. What are the available options for this young female? So there I would temper it a lot more based on size and tend to do just a straightforward bicuspid valve uh, repair. And so in that patient, uh, let's assume that it's an incomplete fusion of the one leaflet. I will then make that a complete fusion. I will put in a couple of commissure sutures to make the valve more competent and improve the appositional area. And then put in the figure of eight suspension sutures that I use in the commissures. And if the aortic root, let's say, is 4.3 centimeters, once I put those sutures in the annulus and the uh, root typically is smaller and uh, that hopefully will get her through her years of, of pregnancy and without being on uh, any blood thinners. So that's my, my general approach in those patients and that seems to be holding up pretty well. We, we did a study on now uh, bicuspid valve repair, 728 patients, the mortality rate was 0.47, very low stroke rate, and long-term, you know, very good results in the region of a 90%, and the more recent patient, 
freedom from reoperation at 10 years. So that holds up well in those patients. But as I say, I, I, I'm a bit more reluctant with a remodeling operation, so I'm more cautious in that population. Is there a group of pop, uh, patients that you would consider using a freestyle porcine rimpton or a homograft? Very good question. Um, so there was a period when we thought that the freestyle and those type of valves might be an option uh, for patients with endocarditis and the problem with that is that all the current porcine root type of valves have got uh, graft material attached to them and I think that increases the risk of recurrent endocarditis. There was a valve called the Shellai valve or Shelai valve that was available that didn't have that. It ran into a lot of valve failure problems, there were other issues and that was taken off the market. So for patients with endocarditis, um, the homograft uh, route is the mainstay of repairing that situation and I think that's a very good way to dealing with endocarditis and the risk of recurrence is much lower. So nowadays, I personally uh, haven't done a freestyle uh, type of repair insertion in a long time. The other thing about the freestyle valve is that if you put it in, and we did an editorial on this in circulation, the risk of occlusion of the coronary arteries when you do a valve and valve it's assuming that the patient becomes a candidate for valve and valve down the road, the risk of coronary occlusion is very high. Uh, it's less so in a homograph, but it's also still an issue with a homograph. Generally, as with a homograph, we will cut away a lot of tissue, so the coronary is a bit further away from the valve. But with a freestyle, where you're putting typically that valve inside the aorta, the coronary artery occlusion risk is, is higher. And so I don't see that the, if you have homographs, there's an advantage to using a freestyle. I think you're better off using a homograph in that situation. So we occasionally put in freestyles, but not that often. Can you comment on how you troubleshoot uh, coronary buttons that are difficult to dissect in a redo scenario or injury to the coronaries? Yeah. So. What I would say is that in the redo situation, yes, it takes a bit more time to free up the buttons. If it's a younger patient, then the typical scenario is a patient who's had aortic dissection and has had the ascending aorta replaced and now comes back, needs an elephant trunk for the aortic arch and descending aneurysm, and then needs the root done because it's a big root with typically severe aortic valve regurgitation. In those patients, I like to sew a eight millimeter tube graft to the left main and then put in a mechanical composite and then bring that tube graft to the left main up on the right side of the aorta, so posterior right and attach that and I do the right coronary artery as a button. The nice thing about doing it that way, and it's a technique I described many years ago, it must be a good 25 years ago, the nice thing is you can run cardioplegia down the tube graft to the left main and put in any extra sutures you need as a 5-0 with a small pleasure to make sure you've got absolute hemostasis at the coronary button or in this case you don't make the actual button, it's an ostium. 
And the same with patients with acute dissection, where you need to do a composite route. That's a very nice way, once again, to deal with that button, especially if there's some dissection going into the button, you can tack down uh, that intima and make sure you've got good flow there. You can even visually check it if you need to. So in that situation, uh, I like to do that. Um, as far as buttons and injury, that is something one's got to be very careful about. In my early period of doing reimplantations, um, I had used the perfusion cannulas in the, in the buttons the way Tyron David had uh, taught. And I had three patients who developed dissection of the coronary arteries, uh, left main in particular. And so I abandoned that. And so I never put anything in the connective tissue disorder patients. I never put a cannula down that left main because of the risk of dissection. In the patients uh, with connective tissue disorders, one has to treat those buttons very carefully. And as you know, I don't let residents or fellows touch the buttons when I work with them. And uh, I continue to use a Teflon donut around the button. It has to be big enough size to accommodate the coronary artery, but not big enough to allow for an aneurysm to form there. And over the years, I've had to reoperate on a lot of patients who've had composite roots or reimplantations where the buttons were made too big. And over time, they increased in size and or dissected and became aneurysmal, and the patients had to have reoperations. So it's very important to use some buttressing material so the button doesn't increase in size. The other thing about the buttons that is not often recognized, and this I learned from doing a study on Dr. Crawford's patients with 348 patients with composite valve grass, most of them done with the Cabral procedure, was that you've got to be very careful about protecting the conal artery coming off, typically next to the right coronary artery, the, the conal artery of the Sion. That vessel, if one occludes it and it's of any reasonable size, you'll have problems with coming off pump with a patient having V-fib and V-tac. So you have to protect that vessel. And I've done coronary bypasses, uh, jump grafts to that vessel to protect it, to get patients off pump. So that's a critical part as far as dealing with the right coronary artery. Now, occasionally it may happen that the uh, right coronary gets uh, damaged. Um, I certainly had one of my associates who unfortunately tore one off when trying to control and dry up after a procedure Marfan patient and in that patient we had to do a coronary artery bypass to their right. Uh, but on the whole if one's careful and meticulous, careful not to dissect the the coronaries, they shouldn't cause uh, trouble. And once I've re-implanted them, I always check that there's good opening and backflow through the uh, coronaries when you run retrograde cardioplegia. My last question for you is, how do you follow these patients postoperatively? So that's a good question too. I, I wish I had time to follow all the patients I've done. And when I was in Boston, I used to personally see them on a yearly basis, which obviously brought a greater pleasure to see how well they were doing. Nowadays, I rely on the cardiologist to follow up 
the patients. I recommend that with the root procedures, a couple of months after the operation, the patients have a, a repeat uh, study. All the reimplantation operations, I do a in-house CAT scan and echo before they discharged to make sure everything's okay. And then every year or two, I think it's reasonable to do an echo. As a general rule, if a valve either becomes stenotic, start leaking, we don't reoperate obviously until they become symptomatic. Um, and it's very rare that one has to operate on these patients again because of arch aneurysm formation or something like that, unless they started off with aortic dissection. If they didn't start off with aortic dissection, particularly acute dissection, uh, our data shows that only 2% in the bicuspid valve patients need another operation within 15 years. So very unusual to reoperate on them. Dr. Spenson, thank you so much for your time and expert opinion today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Melissa, for great and incisive questions, and we wish you every success with your career too.